Well, if you turn in your Bibles then to Matthew chapter 3, page 957 in your pew Bible. Matthew chapter 3, we're beginning our journey with Jesus uh, this morning. It was some time ago that I spoke on Matthew 1 and Matthew 2. Uh, The Gospel of Matthew is the Gospel that introduces us to Jesus, the son of David, uh, the son of Abraham. You see that in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. And Matthew's Gospel is seeking to declare to us that the two great promises of the Old Testament, the Abrahamic promise we looked at for some time in our study of the book of Joshua, is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is that son par excellence, says uh, Paul in Galatians, uh, that ultimate descendant of Abraham. And Matthew's gospel is seeking to declare that to us. Uh, Also, Matthew is saying uh, that in a distinctive sense, Jesus Christ is the only one that can lay claim to the throne of David. So he's the son of Abraham uh, and the son of David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 15, there's this prediction that is made uh, that a son of David will reign on the throne of Israel forever. As we come to the Gospel of Matthew, uh, there hadn't been a king on uh, the throne, not a descendant of of David, at least, uh, since Jehoiachin. He was the last uh, descendant of David. And that takes us all the way back to the time of Nebuchadnezzar, so about 600 B.C. So it had been 600 years since uh, this promise in any way had uh, seen fulfillment. And obviously the promise to Abraham that they would receive the land, that there would be a special seed, a nation would be raised up and the nations would be blessed. For 600 years, it didn't look like that promise was going to be fulfilled either. And so Matthew's point is, (coughs) excuse me, with the coming of Jesus Christ, Jesus is the only one that could fulfill these two great Old Testament promises. And in this gospel, he's going to seek to help us to see how Jesus Christ uniquely does that. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning and look at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Matthew chapter 3, I pray that by your Holy Spirit that you'll help us to see this as good news. I know there are occasions when we talk about repentance, we talk about turning from sin. Uh, That can be awful for us as a church. We don't like to hear those sorts of themes. But I know that as we look at this chapter, if I'm able to explain it rightly, uh, this is good news for us. Repentance is the ultimate way for us to experience the power of God, both as a Christian and as those who don't know Christ. So, Father, I pray that as we go through this text, you'll excite us by its message. Help us to be able to penetrate its depths. And then, Father, I pray that at the conclusion of this service, you'll lead us to that life uh, that is a result of our coming before you and acknowledging our sin, acknowledging our need of a Savior, and then repenting of those things of which we need to repent. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Peter Kuba is a Canadian who ran a website entitled Heaven's Registry. Uh, If you turn to that uh, website, it is uh, now defunct. It uh, went out of business about the fall of 2004. But in its time, if you turn to that website, uh, you are guaranteed entrance into the kingdom of heaven Uh, If you would purchase a certificate for $20, among other things that uh, Peter Kuba said on his website, uh, he said there are a lot of uh, faults that might keep us from heaven, uh, like picking a flower in the park, eating a grape at the market without paying for it, breaking the law by speeding or going through a stop sign, using the Lord's name in vain, adultery, and many more. 
And after raising the specter of uncertainty, the website actually made this statement. Uh, We give you a 100 percent guarantee heavily admission certificate. There is now in quote, no need for confessions or for penance. Now, on the website, you could even for fifteen dollars purchase a certificate for your pets to be assured that they're going to go to heaven as well. Now, you wonder why you want to even pay any attention to something like this. But this drew a great deal of attention uh, back in 2004, at least, because there were countless thousands of people that went to that website and for twenty dollars purchased the ticket to their certificate so they could have the assurance that one day they're going to go to heaven. Now, this uh, demonstrates one thing that is true. Uh, People go to whatever means possible to have the assurance that one day uh, they are going to go to heaven. But to say somehow you can do it without repentance is obviously failing to understand the essential message of the New Testament. And we get that here in Matthew chapter three. Look at uh, chapter three, verse one, as we see the message of repentance in verses one through six. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and Judea and the whole region of Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him uh, in the Jordan River. As we look at John's message, it's a pretty simple one. Uh, two parts to his message. The first part is repent. Uh, repent uh, comes from a fundamental Greek word. It's a combination of two words. Nous is the Greek word for mind. Um, meta is a word for change. Metanoia is a change of mind or a change of heart. So John is saying you guys need to change. You need to change your mind. You need to change your heart. And why is that? Because the Kingdom of God, or as he puts it, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, we can go to uh, any uh, historic events that cause us to think the end of the world is near, whether it's 9-11. After 9-11, our church was filled with people who came for prayer, special prayer meetings, uh, whether it's the turn of the century and all of the uh, uh, centennial scare that happened as people were thinking the end of the world was near. Uh, Some of you may be aware of the fact that the Evangelical Free Church of America uh, was founded here uh, in the 1880s in Boone, Iowa. And the message of the Free Church back in those days uh, was repent and be baptized for the kingdom of God is at hand. It was in anticipation of the 1900s and the end of the age that might come with the 1900s. So the Evangelical Free Church of America preached evangelism, the need for people to come to Christ in light of the fact that the end is near. Anytime we legitimately think that perhaps God is coming, uh, we get serious about our faith. And maybe you saw the sign in St. Paul uh, that they had on billboards around the, uh, the town. Um, Don't make me come down there. If we take that uh, seriously, we might be uh, led to think about the uh, significance of, of repentance. But it's not something we do easily or comfortably. Perhaps you can relate to this illustration that John Ortberg, uh, former teaching pastor at Willow Creek uh, Church, uh, shared. He said on one occasion, he and his family sold their Volkswagen Beetle. It was uh, a significant purchase for them. And when they sold it, they made a fair amount of money and they decided to purchase 
uh, the first piece of furniture for which they paid any significant amount of money. It was a sofa. John Oberg describes the sofa as a pink sofa, but they were told by the salesman for that kind of money, the sofa was actually a mauve sofa. They had a number of small children in the Artberg family in those days. And so they had a number one rule from the day they purchased the sofa. The rule was this. Don't sit on the mauve sofa. Don't play near the mauve sofa. Don't eat around the mauve sofa. Don't touch the mauve sofa. Don't breathe on the mauve sofa. Don't think about the mauve sofa. <clears throat> Excuse me. On every other chair in the house, you may freely sit. But on this sofa, the mob sofa, you may not sit. For on the day you sit thereon, you will surely die. <laughs> well, sure enough, uh, after a matter of time, uh, the uh, mom and dad woke up one day to find out that there was a, a blue jelly stain on the mob sofa. Uh, they consulted an expert and the conclusion was drawn. There was no way to get the stain out of the sofa so they gathered the children uh, together and they uh, began asking, who did it? The mom said, children, do you see that? That's a stain. That's a red stain. That's a red jelly stain. And the man at the sofa store says it's not coming out for all eternity. Do you, long, you know how long eternity is, children? Eternity is how long we're going to sit here until one of you tells me which one of you put the jelly stain on the mob sofa. For a long time, they just sat there until finally Mallory cracked. This is now uh, John Ortberg uh, writing. He said, I knew she would. She said, Laura did it. <laughs> Laura said, no, I didn't. Then it was dead silence for the longest time. And I knew none of them would confess putting stain on the sofa because they'd never seen their mom that mad in their lives. I knew none of them was going to confess putting stain on the sofa because they knew if they did, they would spend all eternity in the timeout chair. I knew that none of them would confess putting stain on the sofa because, in fact, I was the one that put the stain on the sofa, and I wasn't saying anything. <laughs> and then John Oberg says this, here's the truth about every single one of us. Every single one of us has stained the sofa. That's a foundational truth that we see throughout Scripture. Now, in the world today, we think that if you live your life and the, the good in your life outweighs the bad, well, that's a guarantee uh, to the kingdom of heaven. But if you read the Bible, the Bible says all of us have sinned and all of us fall short of the glory of God, that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. None of us are good enough by virtue of our good works to say somehow we can make it to heaven. God himself gives us his standard. It was Jesus who laid down the standard. God gave it first in the book of Leviticus. Jesus gives it in the Gospel of Matthew. The standard is this. Be holy as I, the Lord thy God, am holy. So what's the standard? Perfection. That's the standard. And if we understand what the Bible says, there shouldn't be one single one of us who can say, well, I can skate on this one because I'm perfect. None of us are perfect. And so as we hear John the Baptist preaching, repent, for the kingdom of God uh, is at hand, we should be prepared to take that uh, seriously because each of us have stained the sofa. 
maybe a comment about uh, sin here. You probably know this already. Uh, the Greek word hamartao, which is the primary word for sin in the New Testament, uh, it literally means a missing of the mark. You say, what mark is that? Well, it's not just the Ten Commandments. Uh, it's not just, well, if, if you don't swear and you don't uh, uh, kill anybody, you, you, you don't lie and so on. Uh, that's all there is to it. Uh, I say that because uh, Paul in Romans chapter 7 was looking at the Ten Commandments and he was saying as a Pharisee, I've kept them all. All but the last one. If you look at Romans 7, Paul stumbled when he got to the last one on coveting. Because coveting got to the attitude of the heart. And Paul couldn't honestly say that his heart was always pure uh, in regard to, uh, to coveting. But missing the mark is not being holy as God expects us to be. We all fall short of that. And so it shouldn't be hard for us to confess, but somehow it seems like it is. We uh, perhaps all have followed the Oprah Winfrey story where uh, she endorsed James Frey's uh, A Million Little Pieces. And then that uh, book immediately sold 3.5 million copies with Oprah Winfrey's uh, endorsement. And then there were people who began to complain that maybe everything in Frey's book was not accurate. On January 11, 2005, Oprah Winfrey called uh, CNN Larry King and she defended the book. And the author saying that the controversy about the book was much ado about nothing. And by now, you've certainly heard of her confession on her own show. Weeks later, uh, Oprah Winfrey said, I regret that phone call. I made a mistake and I left the impression that truth does not matter. I'm deeply sorry about that because it's not what I believe. To everyone has, who has challenged me on this issue, you are absolutely right. Repentance is the means whereby ultimately we are set free. Uh, we see in this message then there are people who are coming. We get the impression by the thousands to John the Baptist uh, because of this strange man who is preaching uh, repentance. I should make this uh, comment. Some of you may be aware of this when it describes John in uh, in desert clothes and this uh, demeanor that he has. Uh, most New Testament scholars believe that probably John might have spent some time at the Qumran community, the Dead Sea community. Uh, we're not absolutely certain about that, but he has a message that is like the teacher of righteousness. The teacher of righteousness was the primary communicator uh, of uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, if you're familiar with that uh, discovery in 1949. Uh, the teacher of righteousness uh, taught a message whereby holiness was, was a primary thing. Uh, in the Dead Sea community, they had baptisms, but their baptism was not like John. They had ritual baptisms of repentance. Every time you sinned in the Qumran community, you would confess sin and you would be baptized over and over and over again. So in Ephesians chapter four, when Paul says uh, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, that's over against the Jewish practice that was uh, evident in the Dead Sea community and among the Essenic communities where they would get baptized over and over and over again. Uh, for remission of sin. So in any case, perhaps John was a part of this community or familiar with this community. He certainly was a holiness man, which marked the Dead Sea community. He was one who set himself apart uh, to follow God. He was like a New Testament Nazarene, if you're uh, familiar with the Nazarenes of the uh, of the Old Testament, who took the Nazarite bow to not touch a dead body and, and to not uh, drink wine and all those things that they did. Uh, to remain holy. So he came out and he's he's preaching about the law of God. And that's what he did wherever he went. Uh, you remember that Herod loved to hear John the Baptist preach. 
until John the Baptist confronted Herod about his uh, adultery. And uh, Herod ultimately had John the Baptist killed uh, for that one. So John was the one who came preaching the law of God, this strange man with a vibrant uh, personality. And people by the thousands came to hear him preach and to be baptized by him. You say, well, why would they do that? Well, they did that because uh, I think ultimately all of us have a sense uh, that there is a need for us to experience forgiveness. Lloyd H. Stephan uh, wrote in the Christian century how when King Frederick, Frederick II, an 18th century king of Prussia, uh, was in Berlin, uh, he went to a prison there and he uh, talked to a number of the prisoners as he visited with the prisoners, not surprisingly, every prisoner there said that they were arrested on false charges and they were in prison um, uh, for false reasons and they didn't deserve to be there. Every prisoner except one. And when King Frederick came to this prisoner, he said, uh, why are you here? And he said, armed robbery, your honor. The king asked, were you guilty? And he said, yes, sir. I entirely deserve my punishment. The king then gave an order to the guard, release this guilty man. I don't want him corrupting all these innocent people. <laughs> it seems to me that's the message of Jesus Christ. Once we come to the point, we're ready to say, yes, Lord, I am guilty and I know it. If your standard is perfection, if I'm to be holy as you are holy, well, then I am lost for sure. Uh, so, God, forgive me. Forgive me for my sins. And if as a Christian, once we have made that initial confession, as we live our life in Christ and we blow it with our family and we blow it at work and we blow it in our walk with God. And as we come before God yet again and say, Lord, forgive me, a sinner. It ultimately is the means of restoration. It's the means of power. It's the means of joy. Uh, just to state the obvious in this text, uh, as you look at what we're about to see, we're going to see there is John and then there was Jesus. John had the message of the law. What did Jesus have? The message of the gospel. What is Jesus' message? What does John say about Jesus in this text? Well, there's a, about to be one who's going to come. I'm not even worthy to latch his shoes. He's going to baptize you with power and with the Holy Spirit of God. I can't do that. All I can do is talk about law. I can talk about the coming uh, of, uh, of the kingdom of heaven. I can tell you that you better repent. But there is one who is coming after me. I'm just here to prepare his way. And when he comes, he's going to tell you how to experience the power of God. He's going to tell you what the Spirit of God can do for you as you allow the Spirit of God to come into your life and set you free. So in verses 1 through 6, we see the message of repentance from John. In verses 7 through 10, I'm calling this the manner, manner of repentance. You know, how is it that repentant people are supposed to act? And we see this encounter that John has with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Verse 7. And when he saw the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and you know why they call them Sadducees? Did you know? Anyone tell you this is a deep theological? You have to go to seminary to get this truth. Because the Sadducees are always sad, you see. You can mark that one down. That's just a freebie uh, today. Uh, anyway, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were coming to him where he was baptizing. And he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. 
I tell you, that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I am, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor, gather his wheat into the barn, and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So we had the Pharisees and the Sadducees that are coming to John the Baptist. It's striking that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are quite evident yet today within Judaism. I think they're evident today within the church as well. The contrast between the Pharisees and the Sadducees is that the Pharisees were the group that believed in the resurrection. They believed in the afterlife. They believed in angels. They believed in the power of prayer. Uh, they believed in miracles. Remember, Nicodemus was a Pharisee and he came to Jesus in John chapter 3. No one can do these signs, these miracles that you do, Jesus, unless God is with them. That's the theology of the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees also were self-righteous. They were not ready to admit that they had done anything wrong. Remember the story of the Pharisee and the publican uh, where the Pharisee was praying before God, I thank you, God, that I'm not like this worthless publican, which clearly shows he had no idea of his own sinfulness before God. Uh, the Sadducees uh, were the political leaders within Judaism. They did not believe in resurrection. They did not believe in angels. They did not believe in miracles. They did not believe in the power of God. And today, within contemporary Judaism, you can see uh, uh, those two groups well represented within Judaism. The Orthodox Jews today do believe in the afterlife. They do believe in miracles. They do believe in the power of prayer. But conservative Jews and Reformed Jews do not. If you talk to at least the rabbis, and I've read several rabbis, they do not believe in afterlife. Uh, they don't believe in miracles. They don't believe in angels. So their theology has not changed uh, in any significant way from New Testament times. And we can apply this to the church and say, are there people in the church uh, who may be like the Pharisees uh, who think that we're living our lives so well and we don't ever need to repent of anything and I'm doing all these righteous things. You know, I tithe, I go to church. You know, my parents were Christians. That makes me a Christian, too. I was baptized as an infant. Therefore, I know I'm going to go to heaven. Do we see that kind of thing in the church today? We see it all around us. And here John is saying to religious people like that, don't kid yourself. Just because you call yourself a son of Abraham, just because you may tithe, just because you may have times of prayer, just because uh, you can say I'm always in the synagogue and I'm studying God's word, Jesus Christ addressed someone just like that, a man who was a teacher of Israel, a man who acknowledged that Jesus Christ couldn't have done what he was doing apart from the power of God. And Jesus looked at a man like that, a man by the name of Nicodemus, and says, Marvel not, Nicodemus, that I say to you that unless you are born from above, you're not even going to begin to see the kingdom of heaven. That's what John sees as he looks at these uh, Pharisees and at the, the Sadducees, these uh, religious leaders who could not see that there's anything wrong that they did. I uh, see this, and I'm reminded of the story of the Varag Airlines flight, number 254, that was to leave Brazil's Maribá Airport uh, on a 48-minute flight to Belém on September 3rd, 1989. The captain of that flight was Cesar Garcés. He consulted his uh, computer-generated flight plan, that said he was to dial in the number 0270. Inadvertently, he dialed in the number 
2.70. So uh, as the plane rose to 29,000 feet, instead of heading northeast uh, to the coast, it headed west right toward uh, the uh, uh, Brazil's uh, uh, Amazon forest. Well, they uh, flew for about an hour or so, and of course by that time they should have uh, been at the airport. They couldn't see the airport. So the pilot at this point executed a 180-degree turn, not even realizing at this point that he was lost. The flight uh, uh, attendants were instructed to give the passengers just something more to drink because the passengers were getting a little squirrely. Shouldn't we be there by now? And uh, they gave them something more to drink. And then as uh, there was more uneasiness, uh, Captain Garcia lied and he said, there are problems at the airport. They're having some electrical problems and we're needing to circle. That wasn't true. He was just trying to cover uh, himself. At 739, when the flight was 68 minutes overdue, the first officer identified the problem and started explaining to the captain the captain's mistake. The captain would hear none of it. I did not make a mistake. We'll be seeing the airport any minute now. He continued to fly that plane until they ran out of fuel and they crashed in the Amazon forest. 700 miles from their intended destination. Amazingly, all six of the crew survived, but 13 of the 48 passengers died. Because there was a captain who wasn't willing to admit that maybe it was just possible that he might have made a mistake. As we look at what John is uh, saying in this passage of Scripture, uh, John had uh, literally thousands of people that came to him as he was preaching a repent for the kingdom of God is at hand because these people wanted to be set free. Now, throughout Scripture, then, we can draw some conclusions that are self-evident. Uh, repentant people are going to be graceful people. They're going to be non-judgmental people because if you know you've been forgiven much, it's hard to be judgmental of others. They're going to feel relieved. Uh, the guilt is going to be assuaged. That should be foundational. Uh, this last week, as I was uh, uh, doing work on this, I came across an illustration in Max Lucado's book, Six Hours, One Friday, where he notes that in 1811, the United States government began collecting stories uh, of people who are confessing sins, like this one, dated February 6, 1974. I'm sending $10 for blankets I stole while in World War II. My mind could not rest. Sorry I'm late. It was signed in XGI. And there was this postscript. I want to be ready to meet with God. Uh, the United States government uh, has established a fund called the Conscience Fund. For people just like this GI who in some way feel like maybe they defrauded the government or cheated the government. Uh, and at the time of Max Locato's writing his book, uh, there was some seven million dollars that had been contributed to the United States government conscience fund. Now, you look at that and it says something uh, positive, it seems to me, uh, that uh, people in America want to be forgiven. They want to be relieved of their guilt. Uh, the good news for us today is you don't have to send money into the government unless you've defrauded the government. That probably still would be a good idea to, uh, to do that. Um, but the way that we can be relieved of our guilt is confessing sin before a holy God, knowing that what John says in 1 John 1, 8, 9 is true. 
If anyone says he's not a sinner, the truth is not in him. He's a liar. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what John is talking about in this passage of, of Scripture. Let's be clean. Finally, verses 11 through 17 are the model for repentance. And now we come to the story of Jesus. We read uh, verses 11 and 12. We picked this up in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? And Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water and at the moment, heaven opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I'm well pleased. There are several theological questions that trouble New Testament uh, uh, exegetes. The first is, why did Jesus need to be baptized? If John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, of what did Jesus need to repent? And obviously the answer is nothing. Jesus was perfect. So why did Jesus need to be baptized? Well, you can look at Jesus' explanation himself. He says, I'm doing this to fulfill all righteousness. George Beasley Murray's got a 500-page book on baptism. And as he comes to this passage of Scripture and says, why should we be baptized? Well, because Jesus says it's the right thing to do. You boil righteousness down and uh, you uh, boil it down to its irreducible minimum. It's the right thing to do. So Jesus was being baptized because it's the right thing to do. Well, that's not a complete answer to me. That's not very satisfying. Um, I'd rather look at what Jesus himself said about baptism. And Jesus comments on baptism in two other passages of Scripture. One is in Luke chapter 12 and verse 50, where Jesus says, now this is after his baptism, I have a baptism to undergo how distressed I am until it is accomplished. So there's yet another baptism for Jesus after he, after he has this baptism to which he is looking forward. Or he's more explicit in Mark chapter 10 and verse 38. Again, after this baptism, this one by John, Jesus says this to his disciples near the end of his ministry. Are you able to drink the cup I drank? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. And now it's unmistakable. Jesus Christ is talking about his death, uh, both in Luke uh, as well as in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, he is indicating that there is a baptism he has to endure, uh, a baptism uh, of death uh, that ultimately is going to result in his resurrection as well. But that's the baptism that stands before Jesus. Uh, it also relates to uh, what we see God the Father uh, saying in this text. Because uh, God the Father speaks, this is one of only three times when God the Father speaks uh, to Jesus, here and at the tra uh, transfiguration and then at the, the death of Jesus. But in this particular case, he quotes two Old Testament passages. Uh, the first is Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, uh, which is a messianic psalm, we can find this, uh, this phrase, this is my beloved son. And who are we talking about in Psalm 2? Well, Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm talking about a descendant of David. What's the Gospel of Matthew about? The Gospel of Matthew is about a descendant of David uh, who is going to be the only one, the only legitimate heir who can sit on the throne of David, Jesus Christ. And now in the first act in his public ministry, God the Father identifies Jesus as that son of David, who is the Messiah to come uh, through this uh, quote from Psalm chapter 2. Uh, the uh, second phrase, in whom I am well pleased, uh, comes from uh, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is one of the great suffering servant uh, passages. 
in Isaiah, the last part of Isaiah, and Isaiah 53 is quite explicit in detailing uh, the, the death and the suffering of the suffering servant. As you read Isaiah 53, it unmistakably is talking about Jesus Christ. And as you look at that passage of Scripture, you find that this suffering servant is the one about whom God can say, this one is the one in whom I'm well pleased. So as we look at what is happening in this section, we find out that Jesus Christ is anticipating his his death. Even the voice from heaven and the dove coming down is an acknowledgement that Jesus Christ is starting his mission that's going to lead to his death and ultimately to his resurrection. And what does Paul say about this? In Romans chapter 6, in verse 4, in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 12, as Paul is talking about baptism, what does he say baptism is? Well, in baptism, we are being buried with Christ in baptism. And what is he saying? That as we go down into, well, you can't see it now, but we have this baptismal tank behind the cross. Trust me, it's there. Um, As you go down into a tank, the tanks that they had in the New Testament were tombs. Uh, And as they used tanks like this, and they certainly used these in the uh, Qumran community, And uh, among the Essenes, so it was a well-known practice among Jews in that day. You go down into these uh, these tombs and be baptized and then rise out of the tombs. So for Paul, this was an apt picture. That's what baptism is for us as Christians. We're being identified with Jesus Christ's death as we go down into the water. We're being identified with Christ's resurrection as we come out of that water uh, into newness of life. So as we look at what is happening here, this is a picturing of the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, the life of Jesus uh, that is going to end with uh, Jesus' death. So why was God so pleased? Well, he's pleased because Jesus is doing the mission. It wasn't just that he, he was baptized in water in the Jordan River. Jesus committed himself to the purpose that God had for him, and God says, I'm pleased with that. I'm pleased with that. And we can pause and say, what would it take for God to be pleased with us? Same thing. If we say, Lord, I'm committed to the task that you have for me. Uh, the purpose that you have for me, uh, to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to family and friends, uh, to rejoice in what is mine in Christ Jesus, and to bring others to a point of of rejoicing. I uh, end with this uh, illustration as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. In 1935, Blasio Kogosi, who was a school teacher in Rwanda, Central Africa, was deeply discouraged by a lack of life and power in his own church. Following what he saw in the New Testament, uh, he decided that uh, if you're sensing that you're facing things too difficult for you to control, uh, like the demons that the the disciples couldn't cast out, what did Jesus say? Well, these can only come out with much prayer and fasting. So that's what he decided he would do. He would commit himself to a week of prayer and fasting as he was praying about the powerlessness that he was experiencing in the church in his own life. And he emerged from that week as a changed man. He confessed his sins to those that he'd wronged, including his wife and his children. He proclaimed the gospel in the school where he taught. And a revival broke out where students and teachers alike uh, began to come to faith in Christ Jesus. They were called Abaka, meaning people on fire. Shortly after that, Blasio was invited to Uganda to share with the Anglican church there. As he did, leaders were led to repentance and the fire of the Spirit of God descended on those in Uganda. But just several days later, Blasio died of fever. 
His entire ministry lasted just a few weeks. But in a few weeks period of time, as he was baptized with fire and the Holy Spirit of God, two countries changed as revival broke out. As we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Matthew, although as we start with this text, it is pretty foundational. If uh, we have some sin against a family member or someone at work or someone in our neighborhood or someone in church, we need to confess that sin. We need to make it right. If we're not aware of uh, sins that we've committed, it certainly is appropriate to say, Lord, reveal to me. If there's something I need to confess, well, reveal that to me so that I can confess that and make that right. But the real message of Matthew 3 centers on Jesus. Uh, this servant of God who determined that he was going to be about his father's mission, that he was committing himself to that baptism of death that yet, yet lay before him. Jesus Christ, who John describes as the one who's going to baptize with fire and the Holy Spirit of God. That's what he wants for us. He wants us to experience that power, that fire that can make us alive as individuals and make us alive as a church. As we enter to the worship of the Lord's Supper now, now let us uh, confess sins, ask God to reveal to us what it is that we need to confess and make whatever restitution we need to make. But then pray for that fire, that fire that Jesus promises us. If we turn to him humbly and say, Lord Jesus, empower me with the power of your Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we thank you for the message of Jesus. God, it's my prayer that no one will leave the church today feeling guilted or feeling negative about the message we see in Matthew chapter 3. God, this is foundational stuff. It's the means to new life. It's the ultimate means to joy and to happiness. And Father, I pray that this morning as we enter into the worship of the Lord's Supper, that as we reflect upon what Jesus Christ has done for us, uh, that if you lead us to confess sin, that we'll do that. If you lead us to pray what Blasio prayed, to give me power, fill me with uh, your spirit, make me come alive, make this church come alive. Well, then God, lead us to pray that with the expectation if we pray in faith. That's what you want for us. God, we thank you for Jesus today, and we pray that as we continue to do our work for you this week, as we interact with family, as we go to our places of business, we pray that the Spirit of Jesus might be seen in us by all who know us. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, in our church, we practice open communion. Uh, that is to say, you don't have to be a member of our congregation to join us in the worship of the Lord's Supper. We believe that this is a communal meal for those of us who know Christ as our personal Savior. And so if you know Jesus as your personal Savior today, you are welcome to join us. If you have any questions about whether indeed you're going to go to heaven or whether you're a Christian, you can uh, talk to me after the service or give me a call this week or talk to one of our elders or one of our staff. We would be happy to sit down and explain to you how you can know for sure uh, that you will go to heaven. God, we pray now that you will bless us as we receive these elements. Draw us closer to yourself. And God, we pray that because we've been here today, that we might more faithfully live for you this coming week. In Jesus' name.